Just a reminder that Stats and Stories is running its data visualization contest to celebrate its 300th episode. You can grab data about the show to analyze and submit your entry at statsandstories.net slash contest. Your entry has to be there by June 30th. The close reading of texts is a methodology that's often used in humanities disciplines as scholars seek to understand what meanings and ideas a text is designed to communicate. While such close readings have historically been done sans technology, the use of computational methods in textual analysis is a growing area of inquiry. It's also the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is Colin Jennings. Jennings is an Assistant Professor of English at Miami University. His work explores how computational methods produce new perspectives on the language and literature of the past. His book, Enlightenment Links, Theories of Mind and Media in 18th Century Britain, is expected from Stanford. Stanford University Press in spring 2024. Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I'm just going to ask the question that I have been thinking about is how does someone who is working in English get wrapped up in computational methods? I think it has a lot to do kind of like when I entered grad school and the kinds of conversations that were happening when I was in grad school at uh, New York University. The English department has a close proximity to their media culture and communications department. Mm. And I ended up in classes that were thinking a lot about uh, both like the object of literature, a literary text, but also the media of literature, which led to classes that were like between media studies and literature courses. And kind of in that process, there was just a lot of in the air in like the kind of um, early 2010s, a lot of conversations about digital media and what computational methods and algorithmic approaches might do for thinking about what, what constitutes a literary text and how language works within different genres and media. You know, I, I really loved when I was looking through one of your, your articles that we had in advance of our, our chat, you know, you're talking about ideas as these historical objects that emerge and transform over time. And I, I found myself thinking, could, could you kind of give us an example of uh, where, where you would say, okay, here's an example of an idea that when it first emerged was, was viewed as this, and then it's, it's changed over time. And it, we'll start with the human perspective, and then maybe we can dive in a little bit on kind of computationally what the next steps might be. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, often when I'm doing this type of work, I actually kind of start from the computational perspective, just ask a question about what are terms or sets of terms, kind of constellations of terms that seem to kind of move in the words and the conversations that are part of over the course of time. So one word like that that I've been working, thinking about lately in a, uh, for a piece is uh, the word attach and attachment, just concept of attachment in the 18th century. Most of my work concerns literature and the intellectual history of the 18th century in Britain. And in asking one of those questions, like what, what is a word that kind of basically changed lexical neighborhoods over the course of the century, one word I found was attach and attachment, which 
early in the 18th century and the 17th century, just in the kind of broad print record, most typically appeared within kind of legal context, even when it was in oh, literary okay. text. So a tat will appear in like Othello, and it's used to refer to an act of arrest or seizure. Mm. Like Othello is attached. He is arrested by the state. And there are other moments in which... Similarly, in legal texts, we're referring to the seizure of property. So you might attach someone's estate, put claims on it uh, by the authority of the king. Um, yeah, over the course of the 18th century, by the time you get to the 1760s and later on, it tends to appear in a context that's more familiar to us, most typically in terms of social attachment, right? Often in early sentimental fiction in which novels are describing the kind of different and conflicting attachments that her heroes and heroines are trying to navigate, right? So the parental attachment to their father and mother in terms of what their expected behavior, the attachments that they form to other people in, you know, that they like to marry, that they're courting, right? And so in that case, I, I'm interested in the kind of question is to what extent does that older kind of almost like violent legal notion of attachment persist in the way in which writers are considering questions of attachment, of romantic and you know, sentimental attachment at the end of the 18th century, right? That legal meaning would still be present, even though there's a kind of recognition that they're using it in this more recent uh, modern conception. And it, for me, also that concept of attachment speaks to broader questions about a change in the kind of authority and the kinds of relationships that govern sort of British society in that period, a movement away from a more absolutist monarchical society in which the king's sort of divine right in the 17th century is explicitly stated to the 18th century when you have a sort of rise of parliamentary politics, you have a rise of an emergent middle class, uh, an emphasis on a growing sort of early capitalist marketplace, right? And the way in which that concept of attachment might kind of dovetail with that longer, broader intellectual history. I was actually going to ask you what made you interested in this particular period of time, but it sounds like you kind of just got at that a little bit. Could, but could you talk about why 18th century Britain? The first answer, and probably the most honest answer, is just good teachers. That when I was in undergraduate, <laughs> you know, when I was an undergraduate literature major at the University of Texas, I had some very great professors who happened to teach courses on 18th century British literature. I mean, I, I think for many students, you know, you end up just going where you have great conversations and great feedback and great relationships. So there was not, at least at first, nothing intrinsic to the 18th century that drew me to it. As time has gone on, I've continued to be really interested in that period because it is one of kind of transformation in terms of like sort of the politics, the philosophy, the literature. It's a moment in which a lot of uh, new genres of writing are emerging, such as the English novel. The novel, you know, becomes the dominant fictional form of literature in the 19th century, but it first emerges in the early 18th century, and it's that legacy is still with us. So I was very much interested in sort of novels as an undergraduate studying literature. And I'm interested in the kind of narratives around the Enlightenment period, mm -hmm. this notion of the scientific and political revolutions of, you know, from Newton to the American and French revolutions. And the stories we tell about that period and thinking about how yeah, new approaches might uh, challenge some of those stories. You know, I, 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 this is just fascinating. I mean, this is really cool stuff. And I, you know, I was, I was looking at when you, you talked about uh, this vector semantics, a subfield of 
the computational linguistics as being tied to this quantitative study of word meaning. And that now I'm, I'm, I'm back to being attached to this conversation. You know, come on, Rosemary. Uh, you, you, you know, like you don't know. Always. Like you don't expect. <laughs> so, so he, you know, I heard in your response in your description of attach and attached an attachment, this, this spirit of there's this historic context, there's this cultural context, there's this change in the way we are interacting or that, that society is evolving. And, and you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, that that wetware above your neck is really beautifully positioned to do this. But, but how do you now translate that that kind of work in an automated computational sense. How do you go from kind of you as a human who've, who've done all this kind of study or this collection of people that do these types of studies to, to then saying, okay, how do we automate this? Because so much of this is the context of, of how that word is used, not only in the context of what other words are around it, but in the context of history and culture. That's yeah. an easy one, isn't it? <laughs> it is a, a challenging question. I mean, the, the, in terms of automating it, I was gesturing towards like the way in which I first came to the word attach was by basically comparing the lexical neighborhoods using oh. vector semantics it, from the 1700s, 1720s, so a corpus made up of texts uh, in the 18th century that were printed from that period and comparing it to the lexical neighborhood of attach in a period of text from the 1780s to 1800, uh, and seeing how attach moved from this primary legal in the context of like appearing with words uh, like arrest or seize or jail to in the 1780s appearing with words such as like around concerning emotion, various forms of sort of sympathy and sentiment. Uh, things that we think of closer to like esteem and cherish and love. Um, and I mean, I first discovered that by just asking with these word vector models using word uh, semant vector semantics, if I can create a model that positions all of the words within a kind of given space, which words move the furthest from one period to the next and attach appears in that list of words that kind of in the sort of top 10. And from there, it does become a question of like actually investigating the context, right? Because there are a lot of reasons why a word might seem to move from the beginning of the century to the end. Often it might just be issues with spelling, right? Uh, for instance, another word kind of like this is human slash humane. Um, so human in 17th century, well, at least humane could be used just as an equivalent to human. So John Locke's essay concerning human understanding is initially published with human with an E at the end, mm. right? Um, so it's used just as that kind of synonym with human as an alternative spelling. Uh, but of course, by the end of the 18th century, it starts to mean what we think of as humane, right? As in sympathetic or benevolent. So it moves a lot, but that's more of an issue of spelling rather than actually a meaningful shift. So it's kind of a combination of using the computational methods to first discover words that have moved and then using my experience expertise as a scholar of 18th century literature to kind of investigate those texts to see why they've moved and whether there's interesting stories, interesting kind of reasons behind that that could be investigated beyond just a shift in spelling. How would you define close reading, number one, just sort of traditionally? And I think you're sort of spelling it out, but maybe just, again, sort of more overtly, like what is close reading and then how have these methodologies um, impacted the way scholars are approaching this idea of close reading? Sure. So on close reading, I think there's kind of two definitions that are useful to have. 
on the one hand, you have close reading as it's currently practiced in literature courses. At Miami, the ones that I teach, especially in the intro to literary and cultural studies, but I think most literature professors are teaching close reading in all of their courses on, to some extent or not, um, or to some extent or another. Um, and that is, a, a, you know, the skills of attending to kind of the different registers with, with, on which w language works within a piece of poetry or fiction. So that might mean pay attention to um, the word choice within a passage. Uh, if we're thinking about poetry, and poetry is often where we think most closely about close reading because poetry is in some ways you know, the furthest from our normal speech and use of language. We will also pay attention to things like just rhyme and meter and line breaks, so the form of it. And a lot of it is... I think, with, especially within literature courses, a question about what is the relationship between the content of text or passage and its form. How does the, what it's saying relate to the way in which it's saying it, how it's been written? So that's the kind of skill that we still teach in literature courses today. There's a longer history in the second. So on the other hand, the second kind of meaning of close reading is this history of this practice that goes back to the earlier schools of criticism, such as the new criticism that goes from like the 1940s and 50s, in which literary critics were first developing very rigorous practices of analyzing how most often poetry works, using similar types of methods, but really interested in thinking about the kinds of ironies produced within a text, the way in which like that form and content might work at cross purposes or seem to produce uh, paradoxes within them. So the poems would have to be analyzed to see how they produce a sense of irony. And what's interesting is that some of the f first uh, developers of this historical practice of close reading were also interested in the statistics of language. Mm. So I. Richards in England, who published books called Practical Criticism, um, and was very interested in developing a scientific method of close reading, was also interested in what are the words that are most frequently used in mm. kinds of methods of what we would think of corpus-based analysis in order to develop a practice of paraphrasing literary text to observe the difference between how you might say it and how it's said, right? Which might bring to the fore the kinds of choices that the poet was making and writing it in the way that they did, right? So there's a kind of interesting history behind close reading too, which is in some ways also tied to a history of statistical approaches to language. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Miami University's Colin Jennings. So th there's so much of what you're doing. You're, you're, having, you're taking kind of this text, converting text from this, this collection of texts into some data that you're then, you know, par you're having to parse and having to, you have connected in some meaningful ways and finding through context kind of what, what's suggested by that. And when you were talking about these lexical neighborhoods, you were initially using it to talk about the, you know, how a word's um, use or meaning may evolve with time. It, there's, there's also examples where you've, you've given where a, a particular word is, is spelled the same but has very different meanings based upon where it lives in terms of other, the context. And, and so, you know, you talk about, you know, plane, you know, P-L-A-N-E as, as kind of this nice example of that. So can you talk a little bit about what are some of the triggers within a lexical neighborhood that gives meaning to that word in context? Sure. So, th I mean, this way of thinking about language kind of goes back to the 1950s as well. So this theory of the distributional hypothesis, which comes from 
linguist J.R. Firth, who said, you shall know a word by the company it keeps. That's the oh. famous dictum of this kind of way of thinking about language, which is to say that semantics is in some ways re can be reduced to context, right? So if we think that a word might be spelled the same, but used in different senses, we can determine the difference based on the words that tend to appear with it, right? And so this method ultimately, you know, in its simplest form is in a sense counting the number of appearances of different words around a given word. So if we were trying to distinguish between one meaning of plane, um, such as a sort of topological plane, like a surface, or talking about a plane in the sky, we could determine that based on the words with which that plane is appearing and just counting the number of appearances. So if we see plane with sky and air, right, then we start to get that number, we would expect plane as referring to the object in the sky will tend to have those words around it, and we can calculate that. We can add them up. We can add up the number of meanings to create a basically a matrix that will have uh, the co-occurrences of all the words of the meaning of that meaning of the word plane, right? And that way, you could represent plane as that as that vector, right? As that number of co-occurrences, and that identity of that word plane will be different from the one that refers to plane in a mathematical sense. So that's ultimately the kind of method that I think is at the base of this kind of way of thinking about language. And it's one that lends itself to a kind of mathematical representation. But it's really only recently over the last you know, 20 years as computational power has been able to deal with the amount of variables that you get when you're trying to count up all the co-occurrences of a word with other words that makes it possible to kind of do on a large scale, right? So these were the kind, these kinds of mathematical processes were being described you know, as early as the 50s, but have only recently become very actually useful because uh, we finally have the kind of ability to actually sort of process, process matrices of these size in terms of yeah, representing lexical meaning. As you've been talking, I've been thinking about the conversation around chat GPT and how, you know, in some early, in the early versions, it felt not super fluent. But then I was looking at people's discussions about uh, GPT-4 that has just come out that seems a little more fluent and a little less sort of um, obviously pasted together. And I wonder, just sort of given your research and your work on sort of language in this way that, that are using these computational methods, what are your thoughts on chat GPT and, and how should we approach it? It's difficult because it does feel like it's obviously a kind of situation that's changing. It's interesting. And a course I'm teaching now on 18th century literature and media theory, which is kind of thinking about how our digital standpoint or vantage point changes the way we think about uh, 18th century literary texts. You know, in some ways, it's, it is just a it is a 400 level course that's pretty much just teaching my interest in some, in some ways. <laughs> that's great. But we we began the course with a kind of experiment asking ChatGPT to uh, write a few different kinds of literary pieces in the styles of other artists. So we asked, it's 18th century, so we asked it to write a poem in, in heroic couplets in the style of Alexander Pope. That was his, Alexander Pope was famous for the Rape of the Lock. He wrote mm -hmm. in heroic couplets. He's considered the master of that form. Mm -hmm. We asked it to write a soliloquy in the style of Shakespeare. We asked it to write a song in the style of Taylor Swift. <laughs> uh, and I mean, in that case, you, what we found is just that it did this by pasting together Oh. basically text from those songs, right? There are some within the Swift song, there are some lines that were new, but largely there were kind of bits and pieces from other Taylor Swift songs that had been arranged. The Shakespeare soliloquy was just an actual uh, 
plagiarism of the <laughs> famous Hamlet to be or to not to be oh, soliloquy. And the Pope poem was similarly kind of pulled from various poems, a kind of amalgam of various uh, famous poems by Pope. So on the one hand, there is just this kind of sense, you can see the way in which it's pulling from prior texts, right? It is a, you know, a kind of, um, you know, a supercharged group think that can pull and plagiarize uh, with, the best, with the best of them. I think it's more interesting when you're asking it to produce kind of more new things mm-hmm. because it can actually mm-hmm. generate, I think, ideas. My wife's a doctor and she was trying it out, just asking, I need to write a memo on this topic, give me an outline. Right. And she found it very useful for starting, as a starting point for that, those kinds of forms, sort of thinking about how that might be organized. And I think in that way, like for thinking about how like genres of writing and how to kind of use it to kind of just produce a kind of structure that resembles a genre, perhaps the one that you're trying, or trying to better understand, it can be very useful in terms of producing polished writing, it's quite far from it. Mm-hmm. I think it ultimately is something that has to be maybe a first explore, exploration step right. uh, rather than thinking, expecting it to do anything that's going to be like very useful as a, as a final piece of writing. And I think that's where maybe students could go astray if they are attempting to sort of lean on it in ways that aren't just kind of generative and exploratory rather than, you know, and actually trying to think it's going to produce something that could be a polished piece of writing. I, I, I just would love to see if the, what was produced by it, if it was sent to one of the plagiarism checkers, what, how it would have scored out on some of those things. I, mm-hmm. it just, I mean, it sounds like it would have, it would have been lighting the lights up on them. Sure, I think, yeah, I think certainly, and you know, there have been now tools that have received attention, right, for like determining whether it's ChatGP written or, or not. And um, I think it's interesting because often it comes to a question of randomness. You know, one of the things that that. You know, it seems like this this whole area has really needed this incredible digitization of collections of works. I mean, in some ways that that, you know, if you take the time machine back 50 or 60 years, there just wasn't the online collection to even start even my, you know. Granted, there weren't the tools also to do some of the exploration. So there was that, that kind of prerequisite to doing some of this. As, as you reflect on, on some of the work that you've seen, what do you think has been kind of the most surprising or exciting of insights that have been gleaned from this type of computational investigation of text? So the thing that I find most interesting is that, from my perspective as a literary scholar, is that we often distinguish between properties that we think are inherent to a text, so it's actually kind of lexical makeup, and the way in which it's treated by society. So issues of what we might call it cultural capital, right? Um, and how certain genres of writing receive acclaim and others uh, are maybe more popular, but don't receive acclaim, right? There's a, a couple scholars from McGill, uh, Andrew Piper and Eva Portlands, who wrote a piece that was comparing the language of prize-winning novels to the language of bestsellers mm. and, wow. and observing sort of how they distinguish. And what they found was that prize-winning novels tended to have a much longer span of time in terms of how they talked about time. They used to talk about kind of years and generations and language related to a kind of generational scale of time, whereas bestsellers tended to use a scale of time that is more appropriate to like suspense and horror genres. It's like the day, the hour, the minute, right? That kind of sense of immediacy. And that that's just one idea in itself. But what I find interesting about that in some of the most exciting work I've seen finds a way to connect the social understanding of text with their lexical compositions in the sense that it's not 
as though texts are inherently respectable or worthy of praise or not. But there are lexical foundations that impact the way in which we consider and treat and think about texts broadly, right? There's, they're, they're not disconnected. I think in the in earlier moments of literary studies, we maybe tended to think that everything is kind of socially constructed, everything has is just kind of historically situated, which I think is true, but there are patterns of difference that are connected to those processes of social differentiation. And I'm interested in questions that get at that relationship between the lexical makeup in the text and the kind of social standing of it. So I'm a media studies person, and I'm really intrigued by this title of your book, which I'm going to read again, Enlightenment Links, Theories of Mind and Media in 18th Century Britain. And I wonder, before we wrap up, if you could just give us kind of a broad preview of what you're writing and thinking about in that book. Sure. So it's looking at genres from the 18th century that were interested in the kind of representation of progress in some sense, right? This is a standard kind of narrative of the Enlightenment. It's a period of advancement, a period of progress. And often when we think about narratives of progress, we have an image of a kind of linear teleological progression, a kind of, even in the period, a famous kind of way of thinking about history in the period was stadial history, in which you have the four stages of progress from hunter and gatherer to the kind of modern commercial world of 18th century Britain. What I'm doing in this book and what I'm interested in are the ways in which genres that were thinking about progress in the period were often relying upon uh, nonlinear ways of making meaning using uh, devices that work nonlinearly. Right? So I call it Enlightenment Links because I'm thinking about digital hyperlink as a jumping back point. So how footnotes, cross-references, epigraphs, indexes send the reader in directions other than forward. And how looking at genres that in relation to the types of linking devices they use, rely on other ways of using language that similarly work nonlinear, right? There's a way in which a couplet, so a rhyming couplet, works nonlinearly. This N word of the second line sends you back to the first line, right? And there are other devices. Chiasmus is a kind of trope that you have a kind of X, Y, Y, X relationship, and it creates a kind of crossing pattern, and similarly makes the reader think about the relationships between the words that are not just one word after another. So. Within the book, I'm thinking about how using computational methods to observe how genres like progress poetry, the Gothic novel, conjectural history, ones that are thinking about history and the, and the representation of progress are using these linking devices and how those linking devices actually index broader practices of thinking about language nonlinearly. And what I think the computational methods allow me to do is, one, chart broader patterns across these genres, ones that are hard to close read for, but also it entails a different way of kind of thinking about language. Just thinking about language is not necessarily sequential, right? When we close read, it's our first pass will necessarily be from the top of the page to the bottom, right? But computers don't read text that way, right? They don't care often about order, depending on how you want to kind of the methods you're using. And there's almost, I think, a lesson to be taken from some of these computational approaches to text, which is there are many ways in which we encounter language, which is not the top to the bottom, right? We skim, we scan, we use, we jump from a footnote, from the you know, body of the text to a footnote. We reread, right? So there's a lot of these kinds of questions. I often think about like sort of Claude Shannon, the founder of information theory, who had a lot, I think, influence on these, a lot of these early close readers. And 
you know, he hypothesized that the English language is 50% redundant, that you could read basically every other word and understand the meaning. And, you know, Marshall McLuhan, who comes later, who's influenced by Shannon and thinking about media theory, talks about how he would only read uh, one side of the page. You'd only, you know, read either the left or the right, and you could still understand what's being written. And I'm kind of interested in those broader practices of reading and how computational approaches allow us in some ways to defamiliarize the way we read and as a result allow us to maybe sort of challenge the way we talk about linear concepts like progress. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Colin, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. A lot of fun. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Yeah, so so Rosemary may think we're done, <coughs> but, Char- but Charles is still recording, <laughs> and and you know part of it is you know we have a contest that's going on, and one of the contests very it's it's all the variables that are defined for 280 episodes, and one of those is the text description hmm. of each episode. So now I'm wondering, you know what what might happen if in fact a listener might actually dive in and extract all of the text there and and do some kind of, you know, computational deep dive textual analysis of it. Do you, do you think there's any hope for anyone figuring out what we're doing? I think you could certainly uh, do that. I mean, in terms of just the extraction, right, you just need a web page or you could kind of yeah, scrape yeah, it yeah. in a regular manner. Um, oh, no, it's available. It's CSV, baby. Yeah, you're right, all, you're yeah, ready to roll. Um, yeah, just load into a, you know, a SQLite database or something. Um, yeah, in terms of like sort of charting, I think, well, one, I think you could certainly learn something about like the kind of trajectory of the shows, right? Are there, It's there, downhill. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of like sort of topics, right? Have there certain like risen or fallen popularity, right? Are there kind of that lead to hypotheses regarding like the way in which, I mean, for instance, a, a potential hypothesis might be that it would, that the topics would start close to statistics and media studies, right? Just in terms of your con- con- connections and contacts and move out. Right. But we see like a kind of movement from a greater uh, kind of lexical density of descriptions to one that is more varied as you're forced to kind of go beyond your like your personal networks for guests or something. That would be like maybe one kind of question to sort of ask or, you know, Ooh. <laughs> this would depend on us knowing what we were doing, John. Well, the question you posed. One to Colin. <laughs> <laughs> well, Colin, thanks. That's that's great. And Charles, thanks for letting us uh, run over a bit here today.